Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Text Lab. It's just David here today, flying solo, so you're stuck with me for the next 10 to 15 minutes. Next week, I'll be back with a partner to dive into the text, but today I'm excited to dive into um, John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 1 through 11 today as our goal is just to make disciples who make disciples and really just to help you as a life group leader whatever you're doing to just do some deep diving on your own into the text and really just to help you have meaningful conversations about what God has said to us in his word as you study the text for yourself um, so that it may sharpen your mind and fill your heart so we'll be in John 7:53 through 8 1 through 11 and let's get into it verse 53 they each went to his own house but jesus went to the mount of olives early in the morning he came again to the temple all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them the scribes and the pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst they said to him teacher this woman has been caught in the act of adultery now in the law moses commanded us to stone such woman so what do you say this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is an amazing text that we have this morning. And if there was ever a good passage to really unpack on the text lab, this one is it. And the reason is there's some really just interesting things happening in this passage this week. And so this is a great space for us to kind of unpack John 8, 1 through 11 specifically. And a passage that a lot of times people are not sure what to do with when they come to this text. And here's a few reasons why. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include this part of the narrative. It's absent from all the major Greek manuscripts that we have, and especially in the Western world and the Greek world as well. They don't include this earliest witness to John's original story here. And so in those texts, in the earliest manuscripts, it goes from John 7.52 right into 8.12. And so there's some manuscript evidence that we really have to wrestle with when we come to this text to say, what's going on here with the, with the manuscripts that it's not included in the earliest manuscripts? Also, this story was absent from the Greek church the Western and Greek church, it was absent from the Greek church for about a thousand years. They didn't really include this story in their manuscripts. And so that's something that's important to kind of pay attention to. But however, in the Western church, the story is alive and well. We have a lot of early church fathers. Ambrose records it. Ambrose Zoster records it in 350 AD and Augustine in 430 AD. And so you have these early church fathers actually including the story, kind of referencing it and talking about it. But it made its way into our Bible today through Jerome, who he was the early church father who worked on the Latin Vulgate and put that script together. And so he included it in the Vulgate as he looked through lots of different manuscripts. He found it in those other manuscripts, not the earliest ones, but he found it in quite a few. And so he included it into 
the Latin Vulgate. And that's how it entered kind of into the mainstream. It entered into the Latin text, and that's kind of how it entered into our Bibles in the Western church. And so there's some questions there about the authenticity of the story because it's not in the earliest manuscripts. But you also have evidence for it, um, especially in the West, from these early church fathers that quoted it, talked about it, and Jerome put it in the, the Vulgate. However, the story doesn't really flow with the text of John 7 and 8. And you see this pretty easily where in John 7, 39, Jesus is speaking to a crowd. And then in John 8, 12, Jesus, when 8, 12 picks back up, Jesus is still speaking with a crowd. But in the story that we have in our text that we're looking at this morning, John 7, 53 through 8, 1 through 11, Jesus is left alone. And so you can see how it feels kind of inserted into the textual flow of the text. And so, in other words, this is likely a story that was an independent account that something that Jesus likely did that kind of circulated in the early church and Jerome included it in his Latin Vulgate, which is how it made it into our Bible. But if you look at your text, you'll see that there's notes that say, hey, this text wasn't a part of the earliest manuscripts. Um, but it is something that many scholars agree on that likely actually happened, that this is something that Jesus actually did. It's referenced in so many early church writings. It fits in the character and nature of Christ that we see all throughout the gospel narratives. And so it did likely happen. It wasn't included in many manuscripts, just not some of the earliest manuscripts. And so this morning, as we preach through John, as we work through that in text, we're going to continue um, to, we're going to include it and just continue to follow that text and include it as part of our John narrative this week at VG. Um, and I think actually the fact that scholars have wrestled with this text and even make the notes about whether it's in the earliest manuscripts or not really kind of can help give some authenticity and verifies the accuracy of the incredible amount of manuscripts that we have about both our Old Testament and the New Testament, and just that there's really been really good scholarly work done on these texts um, and wrestling which which ones are most authentic and which ones aren't, and that those notes are included in your Bible today. And so one question I think that can come up in our life groups from this is, how do you know that the biblical text is accurate and reliable? How do you know that? And what kind of journey have you gone on individually? as a group to really wrestle with that, because I really think that's something that a lot of believers never wrestle with, Um, but it's something that's so important to do as it really strengthens your faith and confidence in Scripture and what Scripture reveals to us about God. So now that we've kind of wrestled with some of the textual criticism aspects of this text, let's take a look at some of the key themes and just to see what we can pick up from the text this week. I think, first of all, when you see this woman caught in adultery and the religious leaders bring her before Jesus, it's important to understand that this is a legal trial that's happening. We don't picture um, this in a courtroom, but this was a courtroom in the first century. This is basically how the legal process would happen. Someone would make an accusation against someone, and they made her stand up in front of the group, which kind of shows us that, that they're legally bringing charges against her. Now, in order for them to do that, they would have required two witnesses who actually saw the adultery happen. Some commentators uh, say that maybe this um, seems a little bit like they would have set up a trap for this woman or that there would have been kind of some um, trap against her because how do you get two witnesses for adultery? Um, You can fill in the gaps there, but there would have been some kind of um, things going on here where they're really trying to trap her and now they've caught her um, and they're bringing her into the legal process to make a legal accusation against her. Um, And so they're bringing her in front of Jesus. But the question there is, where is the man in this scenario? It's a really important thing to kind of notice here in the narrative that that is kind of glaringly left out of the story. And um, 
in the law, Deuteronomy 22, 23-24, that's the law that they quote here, um, it would have required both death for the man in this situation, not just the woman. Um, it would have required both to face the consequences for these actions, but the accusers are letting the man get away clean. That brings up more questions about who was this man? Um, why is only the woman being brought into trial? Um, and you're already just seeing the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders in this story, the way that they are misusing and abusing the law against her. Um, that's something that's kind of continued to be a theme throughout John 5 through 8, really all of John, the way the leaders interact with the law, uh, the way they hold to that law in order to condemn Jesus, um, and the way that they are kind of following the order of the law, but in such a kind of hypocritical manner. If you think back about their anger a few weeks ago about Jesus healing on the Sabbath, um, this is a theme that we continue to see. Um, Their misuse of the law, and you see Jesus interacting with the law very differently, primarily because he's coming to fulfill the law. Um, He is doing something different with the law because he's coming to fulfill it, to start a new covenant. So he's not disregarding the law, but what he is doing is he's saying that there's something more to it, that the law points us to God, and that ultimately— that we see the whole story that Jesus was fulfilling the law. Um, And this is another story that's telling us something important about the law um, and Jesus' relationship with the law and the religious leader's relationship with the law. I think there's this huge um, piece to notice here about shame that's in this text as well. Um, Often when we read through the text, we don't always pick up on kind of honor, shame, cues, but that's something that's, as we think about their town, what's going on in their culture in the first century, honor and shame would have been everywhere in their culture. Americans uh, love money. Um, You could say that as kind of a cultural analysis about our culture, but in the first century in the Jewish world, they loved honor. Um, In the same way you can think about Americans loving money, they loved honor. Everything in their society was built around honor, about bringing honor to yourself, but even more so about bringing honor to your family um, and to the different group-oriented families that you were a part of. And so they were a group-oriented culture built all around honor. And so here they are publicly humiliated her. In doing so, they're layering on extra amounts of shame upon her that she already would have been experiencing, um, but they're layering on shame and shame upon shame upon her to kind of bring that um, even more upon her publicly, making her stand up in front of the group. Um, and then by doing that too, they're also trying to trap Jesus. And so you have this real honor-shame exchange happening here, um, and they're trying to trap Jesus to see how is he going to respond to her. They're interested in a trier, trial, but this is really another attempt for them to try and catch Jesus and try and trip him up with the law, try and set him up for the situation. The same way they may have trapped the woman, they're now trying to trap Jesus. They want to kill her publicly, but even more so, they want Jesus to give the nod for them to do so. They want him to be the one that says, yes, go ahead and kill her so that they can even hold that against Jesus. And so you have these layers of the law and then honor and shame going on and then them trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus' response is just incredible here. Look at how Jesus responded. Um, And I think that's even a good textual question uh, for maybe your group to wrestle with is just how does Jesus respond when people continue to try and trap him? You can think back through the book of John. There's been many instances where Jesus has been trying, uh, where people have tried to trap Jesus and Jesus has responded in different ways to them. And I think that tells us something about what Jesus cares about um, as the religious leaders continue to attempt to trap him, how Jesus responds. And so Jesus responds, he starts writing in the dust. 
It's impossible to know here what Jesus wrote in the dust. I sometimes like to think that he was writing R1, R2, R3. Um, but we don't know what Jesus was writing in the dust, and um, but it buys him some time. It might be something important there. Maybe some people think he was writing a different passage of scripture or just a way to even bring a pause to the moment in the situation to the, before he responds to the accusations. But he responds by saying, if any one of you, the most memorable quoted part of this text, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And a discussion question for your group is just, how does this passage tell us how God treats us in our sin and in our shame? Think about that. So he says, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And slowly the religious leaders set down their stones and the woman is left alone with Jesus as every religious leader is forced to kind of confront their own sin and their own hypocrisy in this situation. And then Jesus tells the woman that neither does he condemn her and he instructs her to go and sin no more. Now, I think this is really important for us to think about, really important for us to kind of capture and understand not just what's happening in the story, but the author's intent. What point is John trying to make to us through this story? Um, Because I think Jesus here is not implying innocence. He's not um, condoning the adultery and he's he's not saying that, hey, there's no sin that's been performed here, but rather he's demonstrating his ability to forgive sins, something that only God can do. And I think that's why this story lands here in John. That's a common theme all throughout the book of John is that Jesus is God. He does things that only God could do. Um, continues to show that he is divine by forgiving sins. He's done the signs. He's done miracles, the I am statements. He's continually equated himself as equal with God the Father. And here Jesus does again something only God could do. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can say, go and sin no more. I do not condemn you. Only God can say, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her because he's addressing the law. The very thing that reveals the character and nature of God, he's addressing it and he's interpreting it in a slightly different way, in a very large different way than the the religious leaders and the Pharisees would have been interpreting it. And so those are God statements. Those are mic drop statements that Jesus makes again and again and again. And by doing so, He's revealing his character and nature in that moment. And now John is revealing the character and nature of Jesus to us, basically showing us again and again that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God. He is the only one who's able to rightly judge in this moment, in this story, in this situation. And he judges rightly by forgiving her sin because he knows what Jesus is going to do. He knows what he's going to do on the cross. Um, and And he has the ability to forgive sins because he is God. And so discussion question, what does this passage tell us about the divinity of God and reveal to us about the character and nature of God? How is Jesus showing us a glimpse of the Father here? How is he showing us his authority to forgive sins and really telling us here that Jesus is God, that he forgives sins? So what does this passage reveal to us about Jesus' divinity? You know, I think there's some really incredible applications that come out of this passage. Um, uh, Drew will mention a lot of these in his message this week. And I think just one that I'm struck with is just who am I throwing stones at? Who am I quick to judge others, judging others' sins, judging others that I disagree with? And we're pretty quick to pick up thrones and get ready to throw them in our culture and in our lives. And 
There's a level of pride there, and I think pride is what you continue to see the religious leaders stumble over and over again. They wanted to hold on to the law because they wanted to hold on to their Jewish identity. They wanted that to be the basis for why they were acceptable to God because of who their Moses was, their father was, and Abraham. And they held on to these prideful things that kept them from seeing God and really made them quick to judge others and be very hypocritical of uh, be very hypocritical and very judgmental of other people as well. And so we have to guard against that in our lives. So what stone am I quick to pick up and throw against someone else? And how do I lay that stone down? And Jesus says, if you're the first, if you have, have no sin, then you can be the first to throw it. But who am I? to throw a stone at someone else and what stones am I holding right now? And so I think that's a really important application question. Another one is, do I recognize that I'm the woman who's caught in adultery? That in my sin every single day I am caught. Um, I've, I am uh, rightfully receiving of some level of consequences, some level of condemnation, but Jesus does not condemn me. Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man is quick to condemn the law condemns us. We are guilty before God, but Jesus steps in in that moment and he does not condemn. And Jesus forgives and he instructs me to go and sin no more, to live a new life. And so every day am I living and recognizing that, yeah, I'm, I'm caught. I'm caught in sin, but also that Jesus does not condemn. And am I receiving that grace from him? You know, well, thanks for spending your time with me this morning. Um, My promise is that we're always going to do our best to make this time valuable for you as a leader. If this helps you in any way, let us know as you go and live your life at the gym, mowing the lawn, driving, whatever you're doing while listening to podcasts. We hope this equips you, encourages you, and helps you really ready to walk through the text with your group this week. As always, do your own prep. Let the Spirit lead you. Know that you are one who sent this week into your group, into your family, into your neighborhood, into your Pray Watch community, wherever God invites you to go and be the living proof of a loving God. We love you guys, and we'll catch you next time on the Text Lab. 